It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What was it like to hear about the JFK assassination? Or America's triumph over Hitler? We're seeing Queen at Live Aid. Our past is a collection of stories that bring us to now. Welcome to the Eyewitness History Podcast, where we view history through the eyes of the people that watch the events that shaped our world. Here's your host, Josh Cohen, and these are their stories. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into this episode of Eyewitness History. I am your host, Josh Cohen. This episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kelly Carlin. Kelly Carlin is a radio host, producer, screenwriter, and actress. Kelly is the only child of famous comedian George Carlin. She began her career in entertainment as a production assistant and a photographer for two of her father's early HBO specials, George Carlin Again and Carlin as on a special Campus. For listeners, Kelly By Carlin 1993, has she had left her first husband and graduated from UCLA with a BA in communication for her studies. Light the year on fire Carlin has event. regularly performed Follow her the link one-person show, notes show for more A Carlin Home Companion detailing her experiences growing up with her famous father. Her book, A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George, was published in 2015. In 2022, a four-hour documentary she had a part in creating and starring in, George Carlin's American Dream, was released on HBO Max. It was directed by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio. We talked for about a half an hour, and I hope you enjoy. And now I give you Kelly Carlin. Okay. I'm here with Kelly Carlin. Kelly, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to have you, Kelly. So listeners will obviously have a very helpful clue from your last name. <laughs> but for anyone who might not be familiar with you, Kelly, could you please tell our listeners briefly sort of who you are and what you do? Oh, I'm one of those people that have a lot of titles, labels, because that's the way we work these days mm-hmm. in the world. I'm a writer. I'm a published author. My memoir is called A Carlin Home Companion, which was built from a solo show that I did. So I'm also a performer, a storyteller on stages. I also have my master's in Jungian psychology. I'm fascinated by the psycho-spiritual journey of humans and how we 
heal from our past and how we step into our fullness and wholeness. So I'm fascinated with that stuff, which led me first to get my master's, but also to get certified as a life coach. And in the last four years, I've been leading a program called Women on the Verge, which is a year-long coaching program. I help women go deep so they can take the next leap in their life. And excited about the fact that I'm shifting a little bit with that work and going to start being just kind of an open space. Men, women, whatever you identify as, whoever you are. But I'm very interested in helping people look at the next chapter or phase of their life and to see what they need to shed and what they need to step into. And it's part of my joy in life to do that. I also am an Emmy award-winning executive producer of the documentary called George Carlin's American Dream, which would then lead you to know that I am the daughter of George Carlin. <laughs> Indeed. No, I love it. Thank you, Kelly. And I have some time for to, to kind of dig into all that, which I'm excited for. Obviously, many, most people will know, of course, who your father is, George Carlin. There will be some people that really should know better that won't know who he is. And it'd be great to hear, I think, you know, from your perspective, obviously, as his daughter, and, and take all the time you need with this one, Kelly, but who exactly was George Carlin as you saw him? Well, he was my dad, first and foremost. But what shaped him mostly in his life was his art, his obsession with his craft. From a very young age, he was a comedian. <laughs> he was class clown. And yeah. He is an interesting comedian because he really spans multiple decades and multiple filters that he looked through. And so he evolved with the country in many ways. And so he can be seen as the straight traditional guy in the 60s up until the early 70s. And then he became a counterculture god, I like to say, <laughs> kind of like the rock stars were of the time, but he was in the comedy world. And then he found his way, got a little lost in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, and then really found his voice again in the 90s, whereas really kind of where he landed, at least as part of his craft, as a man who kind of always looked at three different things in our culture, one of which was the really small things that we all share as kind of being humans, the personal stuff, so like the place for your stuff, mm -hmm. and the cats and dogs bits, and, you know, the just the observational humor. He's a man who kind of started observational humor, really. So there was always those little things. And then he had an incredible obsessive love of language and the power of language to shape our thought and how we connect with each other and relate to each other. And so he was the one who did the seven dirty words because he was really curious about why these words with these particular letters in them are seen as bad or dirty. And of course, it's all about how we, the meaning humans make of things ultimately. So that was kind of a cultural take on language. And then of course, he ended up tackling the big issues of American culture and kind of human culture too, but the environment and war and religion and death and kind of these big topics. You know, he was never a, he rarely got into, you know, topics of the moment, you know, or trendy topics. He's a man who always looked at the big picture. And because of that, and because he was such a clear observer of the human condition, 14 years now after his death, he still trends on Twitter and other social media. 
he's still, it's being revealed that he was thinking and saying the things that we are now all thinking and saying out loud because we've all finally woken up to it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And he's claimed by people across the political spectrum because everyone can kind of find their own way into him. But I would say, in general, my dad was a libertarian when it came to language and free speech. But when it came to capitalism, my father was a progressive. So I know those stances are true. Everyone else is going to, and he believed in science too. So take that as you will and decide who you think he is for you. (laughs) That's a great answer, Kelly. Thank you. Yeah. And actually keying off of that, when I think of your father, as you point out, if I was to ask 10 different people to give me their very first, what's the first word that pops in your mind, I could well get 10 different answers. And I think for me, it's free speech. It would seem to me that the thing that, if you like, underlays everything else about him had to have been that. And why wouldn't it be? He made his living, as you do, effectively on words and the underlying assumption that you can say what you want, right? Yeah, I mean, he definitely saw himself as an orator, right? Like someone who uses speech to build argument, thesis, you know? And when you look at his bits, they really are mini essays, mini bits about that. Yeah, And yeah, speech was very important. I mean, Lenny Bruce was his hero. He Mm -hmm. watched Lenny. He was in the presence when Lenny got arrested once, you know? It was such a different time. I mean, Lenny was talking against the Catholic Church. This is why he was getting arrested on stages because the cops in Boston and Chicago and New York were Catholic guys. And they didn't, you know, and the powers that be didn't want people to have this kind of pressing up against these institutions. This is where we were in the late 50s, early 60s, which is insane when you think about the First Amendment, right? And supposedly the separation of church and state. So my dad was very radicalized by that with speech. And I think also his first partner, Jack Burns, really radicalized Mm -hmm. him politically. And yet, growing up, I was taught there are no dirty words, but I was also taught that we never say the N-word, you know? And he used it a couple of times on stage to make a point about it, but we would never use it to talk about another human being in our life, whether we knew them or not on this planet. Like we could opine about it in an abstract way, but never use it to speak of a person. I thought that was a very interesting distinction for him. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, it'd be one thing if it's, you know, linguistics class and you and I are talking about the power of the word and the meaning behind it. It's quite another to, you know, you're down the street and fill in the rest of the scenario there. Well, and what I think is interesting that even in the linguistics class, there's pushback from the left about even using it in linguistics class. Yes. You know, that you can't even say the word because it's toxic or it's traumatic, traumatizing or whatever. And I think my dad would take, I know my dad would take issue with that. And, you know, and it's interesting because in the early 90s, I had gone back to school. I was getting my bachelor's in communications at UCLA. And we were, you know, I was a a big First Amendment nut and loved it and took a bunch of classes in it. And one of my professors and I, who was a First Amendment professor, we did a symposium on political correctness in 1991. Wow. You know, so this issue has been around on the campus a long time. And so, you know, that's where the political correctness part comes up. You know, and I think my dad would probably afford and say, yes, there is something as hate speech like there, you know, he was generally an absolutist, 
but he knew the power of using speech against individuals also. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of veering out a little bit. I am kind of curious about this. Your curiosity, fascination, love of comedy. I'm curious if in any way that's graded into your interest in psychology. And perhaps just for our listeners, the reason I ask that is because, you know, comedy is effectively the study of human behavior, right? If I could give you a 50,000 foot view, surely if it has to be one thing, it's got to be that. And of course, what is psychology? So I'm just curious if you see a, a way those two things intermingle in your mind. Yeah, I think, you know, psychology is coming to grips with the truth of how we think and what filters do we use to perceive reality, right? Right. And how we get out of our own way psychologically is testing and checking in on our reality, right? Like, is this true? Is this, no, this is a five-year-old's version of the world. Why am I still letting this run me, right? That's what therapy is about, basically, right? Sure. And so I think there's an interesting, so there's that part of it, but I think the comedy part of it is, and it's something I've actually been beginning to write about and talk about more, is that having a sense of humor about ourself is one of the most psychologically healthy places we can be in as individuals. And I think that translates over to the collective also, that as a people, if we're able to laugh at ourselves, then we're not going to take a gun and shoot people who might laugh at us. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. And I think a lot lately about Political extremists, whether they're on the right or the left, do not have a sense of humor about their own positions or who they are. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it. And customers love it. Calitrin Healthy Weight Loss. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Lynn lost over 35 inches and 45 pounds. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free Plus, free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word WITNESS to 30605, and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text WITNESS to 30605. 
Well, and indeed, I'll agree with all that, and I'll even take it a step further. I would say that the totalitarians, the fascists, whatever word you want to use to call what's in both of our heads, if there's one thing they hate, it's the sound of laughter. Because it's something that you can't control and it's involuntary. Unless they are the bully making someone else the butt of the joke and you are laughing at their joke. And that's what bullies do. They decide the person that threatens them, they're going to make fun of them. And then they get everyone around them to agree with them by laughing at the person and making them the butt of the joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like an Orwellian parody of the five minutes of shame. I think it was from 1984. Mm. If you're familiar with the, with Mm. the trope just makes me think of, yeah, I was going to say it. It just makes me think of basically it's it's this idea that there's a crowd of people around one person and they, they shame the person for whatever the thing is. And it's just substitute shame for laugh. Well, actually laughter is its own form of shame. Yeah. If you're making someone the butt of the joke, you are shaming them, right? You are because you're making them less than or other in some way. So hundred percent. Absolutely. So it is a form of mind control and a, a form of, and it's about getting allegiance and alliance in groups of people because they bond over that experience of, you know, making that person the other or that type of person the other. Right. Yeah. It's kind of terrifying. I agree. Getting back to your father, Kelly, mm-hmm. I'm curious, this might, I may have already asked it, but want to go ahead anyway. What exactly was it like growing up with him as your father? Were you aware of his fame or who he was or was he just dad yeah so of course i was aware of it how could you not be i wrote a whole memoir about it like Mm -hmm. that's the bit the long answer is read my book the slightly shorter answer is watch the documentary which doesn't have all of my stuff in it but it's got a lot of our family stuff in it but yeah i was aware of him and especially when i was you know when he became the counterculture guy and we'd travel with him a lot in the summers Before that, even at Vegas, I'd see him open for the Supremes and stuff like that, see him on television a little bit. But I was pretty young during those days. But yeah, very aware, you know. But the thing about that lifestyle, the thing about having that family is it's your normal. You don't really think about, when you're a kid, you rarely think about other people's experiences. Like you rarely think about like, oh, Joey down the street, his dad's a lawyer. Wonder what that's like. It's just not part of your insight at that age. It really was much, much later when I went to high school and junior high and high school and started hanging out with other sons and daughters of people who were in the entertainment industry, some of which huge movie stars that, and I never thought about it like towards my dad. I would like, I knew Cary Grant's daughter, Jennifer Grant. And it'd be like, you got to meet Cary Grant. I was like, oh my God, Cary Grant. You know, even my dad would be like, oh my God, it's Cary Grant. You know, (laughs) my dad was always starstruck also. But I never thought about, and it really wasn't until a little later that I realized the starstruck moment with my dad. Like it wasn't until I really thought back on my childhood that I would see that moment where I would, my mother and I and father would walk into a room together, let's say after a concert or anything, immediately all the energy would go right to my dad. And what happens then if you're not that person is you disappear to everyone in the room. And it's a very weird psychological moment. I didn't understand I was living that, but that certainly affected me growing up because that became like, oh, I'm just this invisible person in the room. I don't, Mm. I'm not seen, I'm not heard. What I do or say isn't important, isn't interesting, or whatever the little narrative in my head. 
And that took me decades to kind of unpack that and let that go. Yeah. Fascinating. I understand that. I was kind of curious to maybe get some of the background here, Kelly. In preparation for this interview, I did some research. I found out that you were previously in position to publish an oral history on your dad's life. And I think that was based on stories from friends and family. My understanding was that you shelved that project, or at least that's what Wikipedia tells me. (laughs) Yeah, we still have all of the recordings and all of the notes and everything. Yes. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, my question was, if there was a particular story from that oral history that you'd be willing to share. I did not do that research. So Uh it is not my doing. We hired a journalist to do that for us. So I have not perused those uh, recordings or those notes. That's a lot. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I don't. What I would say is some of those people are in the documentary. So if people are curious, I would watch the documentary that's on HBO Max because it's got a lot of insight into his relationships and stuff. So. Yeah. And actually, Kelly, I think I'll just take that baton from you and make the comments. So I know congratulations are in order for you, Kelly. Thank Uh, you. Yep. So listeners, she and team, of course, just won an Emmy for outstanding documentary for the George Carlin documentary. And I'd love to know what was that experience like and what was it that actually made you want to pull the trigger and make a documentary about your dad? So from day one, after he died, people started approaching a lot of people and we had a couple of maybes and a couple of that could maybe be interesting. And then it kind of fell apart, one of which was a PBS, American Masters, which we thought was prestigious and interesting. And then they told us they would have to bleep all the language. And we went, (laughs) yeah, that's not going to (laughs) happen. So that fell apart. And we just kind of sat on it for a while. We had a biopic in development for a while that didn't go anywhere as those things do, but they take time to kind of see if they're going to go somewhere. And then finally, what happened was I got an email from some agent saying, oh, my client just got a green light from HBO to make a documentary about your father. And I'm like, oh, really? That's interesting. We own everything. What will he be using as archival material? And I called my dad's manager right away, who helps me still manage my dad's stuff, Jerry Hamza. He's also in the doc. And we knew we had to leap right away. And we'd already been, had secured Teddy Leifer as our producer. We'd been in talks and Teddy was being patient with us as we were making our way through the other stuff. And we called him right away and said, we're ready to go. And Teddy had a deal with HBO. And then we interviewed a bunch of directors. All of them were amazing. But the one that really ticked all of the boxes was Judd Apatow. He had done Gary Shandling's documentary. I was a good friend with Gary. So I knew the power and the just the heart of that documentary and how Judd had done it. And of course, Judd's, all of Judd's fiction and nonfiction is very heart-based, a lot of high emotional intelligence. And of course, he's a comedian and he's a comedian historian. He's a total comedy geek, right? So he just checked every single box. And so jumping on with his team, which was so amazing. And then Michael Bonfiglio came as co-director. He did all the interviews All I said to them, all I said to the team was a couple of things. I don't want to be the talking heads show, like boring, boring, boring. Sure, talk to comedians, talk to people. But, you know, it needs to be as innovative and as creative as my father was. You know, and Judd talks jokingly about that now, like, gee, that's not hard. (laughs) Um, and And then I also said, and make my father a human being. He wasn't just an artist. He was a son. He was a brother. He was a husband. He was a father. 
And he was a man. And he was a man who struggled with his own inner demons. So please tell his full story. And they did. And that was it. I mean, I was hands off. I didn't see anything till the rough cut, which was December of 2021. And was really pleased. I had some notes for them and stuff, but very minor things, but was pleased and kind of shocked too, how much I was in it. It was like, holy (laughs) I'm in this thing. (laughs) But what I want to say about that, which is interesting for me, because this is part of this finding my own voice and finding my own way to who I am is, you know, for 30, 40 years, I've been healing my childhood stuff. Both my parents were addicts. There was a lot of chaos until I was 12 years old. And then being able to start telling my story in 2000, 2001, working on my narrative storytelling around town, and then ending up doing a solo show and then ending up having a memoir and really kind of growing myself up through my story and finding more and more ways to make it human and universal. I was really just really pleased that Judd could lean into that and use my book and me to help tell my family's story so that A, my parents' love story was in it, but that also you really saw this man who, yeah, he's a comedy god and a lot of people worship my dad and look up to him. But my thing always is, it doesn't matter who we are, we're all human beings having a human experience. Hmm. And that means there's good, bad, ugly, and beautiful. And if your family struggled with addiction or your family struggled with workaholism or your family struggled with fame or success or your family struggled with, you know, anxiety and depression, well, hello, welcome to the family because so did mine. And so that's a really important piece for me. And I think it's generational. It's important for me because I'm a person of a certain age that wasn't my dad's generation. He was much more private about his life. But in the end, and it's something I used to say in my solo show, you know, people come for the George, but they stay for the Kelly. And what that means is, is they come for the behind the scenes, ooh, the George thing, but then they're able to kind of come and be in the family and see the human story. And they always end up loving my dad so much more at the end than they had at the beginning. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The history of the popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the Popes of Rome and Church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. 
In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform. Ah, that's wonderful, Kelly. No, thank you. This is going to be a silly question if I just heaped praise on you for winning an Emmy, but how has the response to the documentary been? It's been fantastic. I think I saw one snarky review somewhere, you know, like, oh, the Kleenex, she's crying. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Apologies for being human. Right. You know, talking about my mother's death or something, you know, really, come on, people. But no, it's been incredible. It's been amazing. And really, the more accolades or awards or good reviews, it just means more and more people are going to see it. And that's why you do these things is for it to have an impact, for it to have a lasting impact. And for me, these guys, this team did such an incredible job with this that I feel like it's the period at the end of a sentence. You know, it's like, I can't imagine needing to know anything more about my father's career or his family or his life. Yeah, no, that's awesome, Kelly. I keep an eye on our time here. I, I believe we have about five minutes left. So one question I did want to ask you is, what was it that prompted you to write a Carlin Home Companion, your memoirs? I had been a fan in the 90s. I had discovered two performance artists and the whole solo show genre. But I had discovered Spalding Gray, who was known for two things, Swimming to Cambodia and Monster in a Box. And he would show up on a stage, sit at a desk, and for 90 minutes just tell this story. And it was all scripted and it was beautiful. And there'd be some audio and some other kind of cues. But this is a man who unzipped his neurosis on stage. And I was fascinated by that because that is not my father at all. That was more like Richard Pryor. You know, Richard right. Pryor would unzip himself on stage, right? The match running Which down was, the street. Yes, yes. All of it, right? <laughs> Especially all of that. But always admitted about, you know, his hungers and his appetites and stuff, right? He was, mm -hmm. he was, you know, so willing to be human in front of us. And then the other artist, performance artist, was Karen Finley, who really was this performance artist who ended up getting banned by the NEA. And she became part of this controversial, you know, during the kind of the, the Reagan era 80s, you know, and stuff. And But she was another one who was willing to, like, talk about the collective pain of being a woman and stuff like that. So I was very fascinated by public expression of our deepest selves. And so that inspired me. And I knew I wanted to do a, you know, I was always inspired by that art form. And then my mother died in 97. And it's kind of one of those moments. My mother was young. She was 57. I was 34. And when that happens at such a young age like that to my mom, who was just so full of life and amazing, you really get in touch with the or get off the pot aspect of life. Like, oh, life is short and you better get your together now. And so I knew that this was my art form and that I wanted to pursue it and that I wanted to tell my story because of that invisibility thing I think I had. I felt like I couldn't even tell my story to myself while I was living it. And I knew the power also of sharing story. You know, I've been to a lot of 12-step meetings. I know the power of sharing your experience, strength, and hope. And so I really saw it that way. And I so I saw the solo show that way. And then when I got the book deal, 
that was very exciting because I always wanted to be a published writer. And so that was like the thrill, the thrill <laughs> of my life at that point, for sure. That's wonderful, Kelly. I'm curious, is there a one particular memory about your father that stands out for you? There's, I mean, there's so many, right? There's just sure. a, thousands of memories. But, you know, I think one of my, just a fond human memory is like on my dad's day off, you know, he'd lay in bed and watch TV or read, you know, when he like didn't have anything to do and he was recovering from the trip or whatever. And sometimes, you know, when I was a kid and we did that, I would jump in the middle of them and we would watch television, you know, and those are the days of like the Carol Burnett show, mm-hmm. Newhart, Mary Tyler Moore. You know, these are things that like brought my dad to belly laughing. And there, those just family moments of watching television together where everyone's happy and there's no tension and there's no nothing going on. Just such fond, fond memories of that, you know? And that's really like, you'd see my dad just with like no stress in his face. You know, he wasn't off to work or he wasn't having to deal or solve a problem of some kind. He was just being himself in joy. Yeah, that's wonderful, Kelly. Kelly Carlin, how can people find out about you? Come to my website, which is the kellycarlinsite.com. You can find out stuff there. Follow me on Twitter. I'm Kelly underscore Carlin because <laughs> I thought that was going to be really important to have that space between my name. And when you go into my website, if you want to hear more about what I'm up to, I've got some events coming up in the future. I've got a big year-end event called Light Your Year on Fire. And then I have a big course starting end of January, early February. Go to the events button and you can see things there and kind of see uh, kind of some of the stuff I do around the self-transformation work that I do in my life coaching stuff. And other than that, I don't have anything else. I'm starting to develop a podcast. So that'll be sometime in the new year. We'll see what goes on with that. But come see me on Twitter. I'm always tweeting about something. Beautiful. Kelly, this was a real pleasure. I enjoyed speaking with you. I appreciate you taking the time for me. Joshua, this was fabulous. Thank you so much for your research and your thoughtfulness. Thank you so much, Kelly. You take care, okay? You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. As a special for listeners, Kelly Carlin has agreed to provide a 50% discount for her Light Your Year on Fire event. Follow the link in show notes for more details. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more information on eyewitness history, along with show notes and links to resources, go to parthenonpodcast.com, where you can also listen to some other great podcasts by the Parthenon Network, such as Scott Rank's History Unplugged, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen, and James Early's Key Battles of American History, along with many others. Thank you. Thank you.